the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the program. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And we gather here every day at 4 o'clock to take your phone calls and answer your Bible questions. This is actually our last program of the week, the first full week of 2018. I pray that your new year is going well thus far. We've got a busy weekend ahead, and I trust that you do as well. Here at Calvary Chapel, we're going to be in Acts chapter 10 tonight at 7 o'clock, sort of finding our forefathers. You know, we live in a time where people are sort of crazy, and they pay a lot of money to find out where they came from. Well, Acts chapter 10 is where we who are believers in the state of Texas and all over this country that's where we came from. That's our ancestry. It's it's where we belong. And we're going to talk about that tonight, the Gentile inclusion, a monumental moment in church history. And I am excited to do that. So that's here at Calvary Chapel tonight. And then on Sunday, we're going to be in Romans chapter 9. Uh, I'm sorry, chapter 12. I always say that because it's verse 9, but it's Romans chapter 12, starting in verse 9 through verse 13. It's communion Sunday for us. It's... Uh, uh, a wonderful message for Communion Sunday. It's sort of a love test that we're taking. And a love test is what we all ought to take from time to time. You know, when Paul says to examine our hearts daily to see whether we're in the faith, um, he's he's asking us, where where's your love? How's your love doing? And we're going to have that test at Calvary Chapel of San Antonio this week. Wherever it is you go to church, be a participant Look around for the lost and the hurting. Look around for those who look like they need some fellowship or need some prayer. And be the one that God is able to use. Don't just go to church and consider that's, well, that's what God wants me to do, so I'm going to go to church. Don't go and talk to all the people that you normally talk to. Look intentionally for people that you don't know. And you'll be blessed. So um, I, I just I'm excited about what God is going to do in 2018. Maybe it's because I'm getting older. I don't know. But but I really feel like this is a year that God is going to do some pretty spectacular things. I just want to be sure that we're a part of it. And I hope and pray that you want to be sure that you're a part of it as well. Uh, to that end, we um, I, I mentioned this before in passing, but we have a pastor's discipleship class that we've been doing here for nearly 20 years or about 20 years um, every other Saturday, um, we cancel it around holidays and stuff, but, um, and we're going to talk about some of those things. We're going to talk about what the church ought to look like as opposed to too often how it looks today. So we do that every other Saturday at 1030. And, uh, while it's a specific group uh, of people that have been coming all these years, if any of you want to join in, just pop in at 1030 and be ready. It's for um, anybody and everybody who, who really wants to get serious about serving the Lord. So that's what we're going to do here this weekend at Calvary Chapel. Here's the phone number for your live calls and questions. It's 340-9585. That's 340-9585. You can also call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. Numerically, that's 630 You can email us with your question by emailing questions 
at calvarysa.com, or you can send them in via the free Calvary Chapel mobile app if you're driving in your car. The safest way for you to call is use the KSLR free mobile app. Just hit the uh, call now button on your screen, and then you can be with us hands-free and safely, and we'd love to have your calls and questions. 340-9585. Let me go to some questions that have been sent. This is from our mobile app first from Nacho. He says, what is the significance of the cup full of foaming wine in Psalm 75, verse 6 through 8? Uh, let me read it so that the, the audience knows, not you. It says, verse 6 says, uh, No one from the east or the west or from the desert can exalt a man, but it is God who judges. He brings one down. He exalts another. In the hand of the Lord is a cup full of foaming wine mixed with spices. He pours it out, and all the wicked of the earth drink it down to its very dregs. Uh, this is a psalm by Asaph. Asaph was the great singer during um, the, the reigns of David and Solomon. And this was a psalm that he wrote, and this speaks of judgment. The, the, the cup of, full of foaming wine mixed with spices is a reference to the judgment, those who, who uh, are disobedient to God, those who reject him. Uh, and this is just a promise, and this would have been a very encouraging promise to Jews um, that, you know, it doesn't look good for us at times. We've been going through some difficult things, but God will vindicate us. God will vindicate us as he judges the earth, uh, those who reject him, and, and they're going to have to drink the full force of the cup of his fury. So that's what that's all about. It's nothing more um, as a New Testament application for us, Nacho. What we would say is that that those who reject God, unlike Jews who didn't have a New Testament concept, um, we're not eager for people to be judged. We're doing our best, given the gifts that we've been using and the purpose of the Holy Spirit for inhabiting us. Our job is to prevent people from being judged. So it's appropriate to warn people, look, you can reject Jesus, but there's going to be consequences, and we should do that. But the idea here, and and it's very, very specific, is the consequence is going to be a judgment of your soul. And there's no way, once once the judgment's been pronounced, there's no way at all to avoid it or to lessen the fury of it. So that's all it means. It is a, uh, a great passage. It would have provided a lot of hope for those who are running... Uh, in um, difficulty or having difficulty. Here is another question from our email inbox. This one anonymously. Uh, Pastor Ron, I know you always say to not give the enemy so much credit for things going on in our lives. How do I know when it's me and when it's the enemy or does that matter at all? In talking with others, how should we phrase it when we think the enemy is at work? And not enough, let me work backwards. We're talking to others. Um, we should let people know that the enemy is always at work. We're always under attack. But see, we have the capacity to fight. Ephesians chapter 6 tells us how to fight. You've heard me say this on this radio program hundreds of times over the, the five plus years that we've been on the air. Um, we just have to be with Jesus. Let him do the fighting. But we should never be surprised. And it's always a little uh, interesting to me that Christians characterize it. Well, boy, I'm really under spiritual attack. Well, of course we're under spiritual attack. We always are. So what we've got to do is purpose in our hearts to respond to his constant, relentless attacking by running to Jesus. I think part of the problem we have, Anonymous, is that we're under attack. Instead of running to Jesus, we try to fight or resist in our own strength, and that just makes things worse. So it's really important. It doesn't matter whether it's you or the enemy. It's your flesh and the enemy trying to to, to provoke your flesh. But we have the answer, the solution. You know, if I was a... Um, uh, in a place where I felt like I wasn't under spiritual attack. Uh, I, I mean this sort of metaphorically. I don't want anybody really to be in my dreams, but you should be in my dreams. I'm under attack all the time. But that doesn't surprise me. What would surprise me is if I wasn't. And I think we too often treat spiritual warfare like it's some 
rare thing that somehow rears its head, but it's always there. There's always an enemy. He's prowling around, Peter says, looking for the perfect moment to devour us. So that warfare is going on all the time. So what we ought to do is be with Jesus. He's the only one that can fight for for us, fighting on our behalf. So it's an important change of perspective, I think, that we need as New Testament Christians. When I say, not to give the enemy so much credit, you know, we blame him. Somebody gets a cold, oh, the devil's trying to stop me. He doesn't give us colds. Oh, I got a bad doctor's report, the devil's trying to kill me. That's not him. That's our bodies that are wearing out. So what we have to do, instead of, as I said, being surprised, we just need to go on the offensive. The way we do that is to be with Jesus. What I want to do is I want to be like Job. And I I mean this before all of the calamity. When Satan appeared at the throne of God and Jesus noticed at that moment that Satan had been inspecting Job. It's a military term. It wasn't that that the, the Lord handed Job over to Satan. Satan was already planning and scheming to destroy him. And so the way for us to understand this is that, that the Lord said to the devil, you've been checking out my servant Job, haven't you? I found none like him. I have no one else as righteous as he. He's the best of the best. And the idea there is that you were checking him out, but you couldn't find an opening. Why? Because he's with me. Not in the same New Testament sense, but, but in a sense as close as an Old Testament person could be. All of that to say that when the enemy is trying to check me out, I want him not to be able to find any openings. And we're the ones that give him openings as we get a little bit of distance from Jesus. So, Anonymous, I hope that makes sense to you. Um, The first place to check, I'm glad I thought of this, this is important. When you're feeling a little distant from the Lord, when you're under attack, and you can discern that the, the enemy has been given an opening, consider it's always you. That's the first place. And when I do that, sometimes the Lord's saying, nope, just the enemy attacking. I know how to fight then. But if it's me, if there's something that's in me that's giving him that opening, then if I am honest enough and God puts his finger on it, and he will, by the way, the Holy Spirit will do that. If I'll do that, then I can fix it. I can say, Jesus, I'm so sorry. Forgive me for allowing this bitterness or this unforgiveness or whatever it is. I've given Satan an opening. Please forgive me. Let's close that door to the enemy. And he will always do that. So it's a great question. But we just need, I think, a different perspective. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is another anonymous question that was sent in to us. Uh, if I need therapy or counseling, should I consider a psychologist or a biblical counselor? Now, Anonymous, you've given me a lot of general information here, so I don't have any specifics. But uh, I'm just, forgive me for saying this, but I, I, I say often on this program, the Bible has the answers for everything that we're ever going to go through. For everything. This is always the place that we should start. Therapy focuses on you. If we want to get the problems resolved, we need not to focus on us. We need to do exactly the opposite. We need to focus on Jesus. So I wouldn't consider a psychologist or a biblical counselor. A biblical counselor is somebody who who says they're a Christian, but they're using psychology and the foundations of psychology. That's what the church is for. That's what the body of Christ is for. I'm going to say this, and then I'll explain why I know what I'm saying sometimes isn't uh, applicable. But, But... We who are pastors, we know the word well enough, or at least we should know the word well enough, to navigate you through your crises. 
therapy counseling is the most selfish hour or however long it takes that ever occurs in, in, in a church. People want to talk about themselves. And if you go to a pastor for counseling, he is going to refocus you, not, not on you, not on your problems. He's going to refocus you to Jesus. And Jesus has the answers. Now, here's why I said that this isn't always available, because I get reports all the time that there are churches that actually charge their members for counseling. That is beyond my ability to comprehend. How could I ever explain to Jesus that somebody that comes to Calvary Chapel, that serves, that, that, that comes to hear the word of God, somebody that's a part of this fellowship, and then if they want or need individual time or counseling, we charge them for it? Let me go so far as to say, if you go to a church that's going to charge you for counseling, you need a new church. I just heard how direct that sounded. Um, but I stand by it. If you're a contributing member, financially, physically, your heart, that's what churches are supposed to do. Do you imagine in the Book of Acts church that there were people that were counselors that charged? Everybody gave whatever they had so that anyone in need would have what they needed. Uh, that would extend to counsel, but the counsel then would have been biblical counsel. This is what God's Word says. And since I've taken this long on this one already, Anonymous, let me add this, that typically, and I'm, I don't mean I'm an important person, so don't misunderstand this, but I'm a busy person. And so counseling has, has really changed for me over the years. I typically start counseling sessions by telling people that if you do what God's Word tells you to do, things will get better. But if you're not going to do what God's Word tells you to do, let's just save everybody some time because things are going to get worse. And, and I want them to make that commitment. No, we want help. We want to do what God's Word says. And then I'm going to test them on that as we actually open the Word and say, this is what you do. If your marriage is falling apart or if you've got this issue from your previous life, whatever it is. You need to know what God's Word says because that's the only answer. I have been accused after saying that of being really direct. Well, gee, that's awfully direct. Well, that's as loving as I can be. I don't want to give anybody false hope. At the same time, I want to exhort them to exercise their faith to believe that God really does have the answers. And He really does know what's going on. So uh, I go to your pastor and um, ask him for help. Uh, we have a bunch of staff pastors here at Calvary Chapel. I think we have eight pastors, uh, including me. Uh, and, and we have other people that are gifted uh, to teach. And that's what counseling is. It's just teaching one-on-one. -on -one. And so if I can't do it here, uh, and often I can't. There are people better suited. Often when somebody will come to me and ask about counseling, the Lord will immediately put somebody's name on my heart. And, and I'll say, you know what? I've got just the people that will help you that, that really understand this. So uh, I, I think that's what you ought to do, Anonymous. Thank you very, very much. Here's a question from Ben. This is a Texas question. Uh, what's more important, Sunday school or the worship service? Ben, um, when I was saved, now remember, I grew up without any church tradition at all. So I didn't know what Sunday school was or what the worship service was. It just didn't make any sense to me. Um, so when I got saved as an adult, I was nearly 40 years old, and I started going to different churches. And I, was, I would spend as much time as we could in church. For Paul and I would go... Uh, to two or three, sometimes four different churches on a Sunday, just because we knew we could get different services, and I was hungry. We wanted to get more and more of God's Word. And so somebody would say, well, Sunday school starts at 9.30. Well, what's Sunday school? And they'd say, well, that's just a place where we teach the Bible. And I'd say, well, then what's your worship service? And they would say, well, that's a place where the preacher preaches. And, and I wasn't quite sure what that meant until I started going. Here's what made sense to me. This is when I found Calvary Chapel. 
Ben, when I went into my first Calvary Chapel Bible study, David Rosales was the pastor in uh, then Ontario, California. Now he's in, in Chino, California. Um, there was worship at the start. Band was playing and I loved the music. And then he walked up to the pulpit. He opened the Bible and he said, we're going to teach. And he would give the chapter and the verses he was teaching that day. And everybody in the church opened their Bibles and we followed along as he taught us, took notes if that's the way we learned the best. And there was no need for a Sunday school. So I, I think if you're going to a church, a Baptist church, for example, that's set up this way, as long as you understand the differences, I think they're both important. I think it's important to be a part of a body. And if your church has both Sunday school and a worship service, then I think you should participate in both. If I had to choose which is more important, I would say the Sunday school, if the teaching is good and the teacher is gifted, because teaching is what we need. That's what Jesus did. It's what we need to do. We need to be taught far more than we need to be preached at. We need to be taught. So uh, for us, we just have three services, um, 8.30, and 11.59. And on Sunday, all three of them are the same. I mean, the message changes a little bit. I can't do it exactly the same. And there's a different audience of the Spirit sometimes is is addressing different people and different issues. But um, it's always looked the same, and we've done this for now nearly 23 years. Nothing has changed. Ben, if you were to come to Calvary Chapel tonight, we're going to say open up your Bibles to Acts chapter 10. Our study tonight is going to be chapter 10, verses 1 through 33, actually, we're going to touch on 34 and 35 uh, just to set up next week. And then we're going to pick up where we left off next Friday night. So the most important thing is being taught. And perhaps if you have to choose to go to one, to attend one and serve at the other, um, um, you can pick the Sunday school where you're going to be taught and then find an appropriate place for service. So I hope that helps. 340-9585, we're coming down to the end of our first half of the program on this Friday edition of the show. Um, so rather than open another question, let me just address um, something that, that I think would also be helpful for Ben in his question. Um, I mentioned a moment ago, we have three services here on Sunday. Many, many, many of the people are here all three services. They come to one service to be taught. They serve another service, or perhaps they go and they, they join the prayer team praying for the services for a third service. Um, but, but there's all kinds of ways to be used. And, you know, I don't have people complaining, God, go to church, all three services. Paula goes to church every time the door is open. She listens to me teach more than anybody in the world. And she never complains about it. And it's not just because she's nice. She never complains. She wants to be taught. And if we look at church that way, uh, you know, we're, we're out of here in third service around 1.30. So if somebody comes for the 8.30 service and they leave at 1.30, is that too much to give to the Lord? You can still go out to lunch. You can go out and fellowship with people. You can have people over to your house. You can go over to other people's houses. That happens every weekend here at Calvary Chapel. But get involved with the church Ask God how you can use your gifts, and I promise you, it will change your whole perspective on what church is. That means you end up being the church instead of just coming to church and listening to somebody like me talk. Hopefully we're teaching and it's a value to be taught. But it is also valuable to you to use your gifts given by God to minister to the needs of other people at the same time when you do that you'll be the one who ultimately and abundantly I would add gets blessed so Ben good question it gave me an opportunity to talk a little bit more about the value of fellowship 340-9585 here is a question from Ken I think we're at two minutes 
Okay, so I can do this one quickly. Uh, is it true that pastors' kids usually leave the faith? Ken, it's not true that they usually do. They often do. Um, um, I think for two reasons. I think primarily the reason is, is uh, I think they're assigned, I think they have demons assigned to them. I, I think um, the way to ruin a pastor's ministry is to, to destroy his family. And um, I think if they're not really committed to the Lord, they're going to fall. Uh, but there's another reason, and it pains me to say this. Um, I think the other reason is that um, too often they notice the hypocrisy in their dad, the pastor. Um, you know, it's one thing to watch your dad stand at a pulpit and lecture others. But if you're not living it at home... All you're doing is turning your children off. And I think many times it's just, well, if that's Jesus, I don't want him. And it's just a normal way of rebelling. So pray for pastors and their families. We've got 30 minutes left in the week, 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. You're listening to The Word to Send Them for Life. We'll be back in two minutes. the word to stand on for life we're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR now here's pastor ron arbaugh welcome back to our final half hour of the week 340-9585 here is a question from scott from our email inbox uh, Scott says, I had a conversation with a co-worker today about being a child of God. He said that everyone is a child of God. I disagree. God created everyone, but only Christians are children of God. How can I explain this? Scott, I think you explained it in your question perfectly. Um, to be a child of God, you have to be born into his family, or you have to be adopted. We who are Christians have been adopted, and we can call him Abba. Um, he's our Papa. That's that's a literal or loose translation, rather, of of the word Abba. But you see, a stranger can't say that to him. So we're all created in God's image. There's things about all of us that come from God. We're all created to live somewhere forever. We're all eternal. Uh, we all have the capacity to choose. We've been given free will. God chose us. We've been created with the capacity to choose God. But to be a child of God, we have to be born to Him or born again by the Spirit of God. So your statement that God created everyone, we're all creations of God for sure. But we're not all children of God. And the difference and the, the importance, the, the staggering importance of that is heaven or hell. Um, if you're a child of God, you can call him Father. You know, even in Jesus' model for prayer, Scott, we said this then is how you should pray our Father. But you can't do that if he's not your Father. You can't do that unless you're, you're saved. So while God loves everything he created, We only belong to him by virtue of a new birth. So that's the only thing. So you're right. Hold to your position. And, and just, uh, I would ask him to be logical. You, you can't come to my father and say, hi, dad. My dad would say, who are you? I don't know you. In exactly the same way, you can't say that to our father in heaven unless you've accepted Jesus Christ, unless you've been born again. So um, not everyone is a child of God. By the way, Scott, this is an argument that we get often from uh, the homosexual community when they say, well, we're all creating God image and we're all children of God, and so all of God's children are, are loved. But he can't love somebody who doesn't know him the same way that he loves somebody who does know him. Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. It didn't mean that he really hated Esau. He was just using Hebrew relativity. What he was saying is, look, I love Esau, but I can't love him the way I want to love him. I can't love him the way I love Jacob. Why? Because Jacob sold me out for a bowl of stew. 
I'm sorry, uh, Esau sold me out for a bowl of stew. Jacob, even though he's rebelling against me and he's going to be a project, Jacob, I know, is going to come to me. And we find that happening, of course, in Genesis chapter 32. So, uh, Scott, you've got it perfectly right, and I think um, you understand how to explain it. 340-9585, here's an anonymous question from a mobile app. I was waiting for this question, by the way. Should Christians play the lotto? Um, when the lottery gets like $600 million, I think it's something close to that. Uh, people want to know, should I play it? Is it okay to play it? You know, the Bible doesn't say it's not okay to play it. Should Christians play the lotto? No, I don't think they should. But I also don't think if they can do so with a clear conscience that it's a, a, a sin. I don't think it's showing a lack of faith in God. I I think if you actually won the lotto anonymous, that's when you'd really have to be worried about your faith in God because that level of temptation would be overwhelming. I can hear people in the audience saying, well, bring it on then. I think I can handle that. But but I, I don't think there's a yes or no answer. I think it's individual. Romans fourteen twenty three says that everything not of faith is sin. So uh, perhaps, Anonymous, if you have to ask the question, that's your conscience checking you. Um, and maybe for you it's not. Um, but it would be disingenuous for me to say, because the Bible doesn't say it, that somebody who, who paid a dollar or ten dollars or twenty dollars uh, to play the lottery, uh, that they, they're guilty of sin. That's, that's uh, simply not a place that we can go based on what the Bible says. Uh, I'm asked often, Anonymous, uh, if somebody won the lottery and they gave a whole bunch of money to Calvary Chapel of San Antonio, would we accept it? And my answer is faster than you can possibly imagine. See, we would take that worldly money and we would redeem it for the use of God. There's sort of a phony spirituality. Oh, I don't want worldly money. We all get worldly money. The work you do that pays you is worldly money. Now, you redeem that work. Everything you do, do it as unto the Lord, Paul writes. Um, The same thing would be true of this. Here's the thing that I caution everybody. Don't make promises to God when you're thinking about playing lottery. Well, if I win, I'll give a whole bunch of church. Uh, Don't make that promise. If you win, just do whatever you can do with a joyful heart because you're grateful for what God has done to you. But yeah, we would take the money and we would turn that worldly stuff into God's glory so quickly it would make your head spin. So uh, I guess that's my way of saying, no, we never ask for money. We never let our needs be known. But let me just say that if in fact, if in fact somebody wins the lottery, um, we'd be more than happy to take a portion of that and use it for God's glory. Hope that helps. Here is a question, another anonymous one. Uh, I'm a Christian, and so is my son. He wants to be a police officer, and I'm worried that a Christian shouldn't be in a position where he might have to shoot someone. Should I discourage him? Anonymous to the contrary. We need Christian cops. You talk about a field of, of, of mission work, You talk about ministry opportunities, the lost, the hurting, the hungry, the broken, the needy, the confused. They're in the back of police cars every single day. Let me tell you a quick story. I was at the gym here in Live Oak um, um, on New Year's Day, in fact. And uh, there was a a man sitting uh, in the locker room. and uh, We just started talking, and I introduced myself, and he introduced himself. And in the conversation, he said, you know, I'm a cop. been a cop for... for, um, uh, 28 years before that, I was a firefighter. And um, he started talking about uh, the ministry opportunities. He's a, a police officer in Live Oak, said that everybody that gets in the back of his police car um, hears about Jesus because he's got the answer. Uh, he, he actually said that uh, he'll tell people who are, uh, when he gets called down, someone, look, I don't want to arrest anybody. I'm arresting anybody today. Don't want to arrest anybody today. But you get to make that choice. And he, he's really got a perfect position to tell people about Jesus. There's nothing sinful about defending yourself. If a police officer has to use deadly force, then then it's, it's acceptable uh, if it's used correctly. 
That doesn't mean police officers don't mess up. We know they do. But by and large, far and away, um, police officers are trying to do their job. They're trying to do it well. And there are many, many, many more police officers than you can imagine. One other advantage of being a police officer who loves Jesus is that the, the, the men and women that you work with who aren't believers, wow, what an opportunity to share the gospel. Every day they walk out of the door, they might not come home. And the police officers I know are constantly sharing their faith with other cops. We have a bunch of police officers here in our church body, and they're active in sharing their faith with uh, co-workers and criminals alike. And it's a great, great vocation. And uh, I think Jesus would be right there in the police car with them. So please don't discourage him. If he wants to be a police officer and he loves Jesus, um, be the biggest support group for him that you can possibly imagine. It is a great, great ministry. And I know some of those police officers uh, are listening to the program. So, Ernie, uh, we're praying for you. Joe, we're praying for you. Um, For the rest of you, um, go with Jesus. Be blessed and be a blessing. 340-9585. Here is a question from William. Pastor Ron, do you think a pastor who has been unfaithful to his wife should be restored to pastoral office. Uh, William, uh, I personally do not. Uh, I I don't have the gospel law on this. Um, God is a restoring God. Um, But but I always think about James, William, when he said that uh, not many of you should seek to be teachers, for we stand to stricter judgment. Uh, Jesus said, to much is given uh, much has been required, much is required, and the, the, the context there is much more is required. Uh, and I think this is one of those things. I, um, I I simply think that if we cheat on our wives, the second most important commitment we we have, the first, of course, is Jesus. If we cheat on our wives, we've cheated on that commitment as well. I think we actually lose um, the, the um, position of trustworthiness. Um, we can no longer say we're above reproach, and that doesn't mean that we're perfect, but but uh, I think just because we're a good preacher or teacher, um, if we were really good, then we wouldn't have cheated. If we were not hypocrites, we wouldn't have betrayed uh, our Lord and or our wife. So it is my personal opinion, William, that um, a man who has cheated on his wife should not be restored to the office of a pastor. Um, uh, there are people who disagree with me. Uh, but, but what we've done, and I think to our shame, is we've taken men that are good preachers. And we, we, we are shocked when they fall. Um, but then we do everything we can to push them back uh, into the pulpit because we like the way they teach, or we're, they're very popular in it, and that, that's why our church grew so large. Uh, and, and I think accountability starts at home in the in the in the house of God. So um, again, God's gifts and calling are irrevocable. Uh, if I were to cheat on Paula, if she let me live, um, I would lose my ability to teach. Uh, I still have the gift of teaching. Um, but I would I would think I would I would have to find other outlets for it after I was sufficiently restored uh, and our marriage was restored. I think I'd have to find other outlets, but, but I just don't think that God would be able to set me up before the church as an example of a man who really wants to serve him. So uh, that's my personal opinion. There is no Bible verse and there's been a lot of arguing and speculation over that very question, William, for a long, long time. I've been saved for 27 years, and I've heard this debate fire up every time a, a, a well-known pastor um, cheats on his wife. So that's the best I can do. Henry wants to know if God still does miracles. Um, Henry, he does, but if you're reading Jesus' miracles or the miracles that were done in the book of Acts, I want you to please note something, especially as it relates to the book of Acts. It says that the miracles were done by the apostles. 
Later, we see some other people who, who are moved in the ministry. Stephen is one of them. Philip is another one. Um, they uh, God does miracles at their hand. But those are exceptions rather than the rule. So uh, the, the kind of miracles, um, giving sight to the blind, uh, cleansing lepers, those kinds of things, giving the, the, the crippled the, the strength, rise and walk, uh, Peter said to the beggar at the gate, beautiful. Um, typically speaking, um, those kind of miracles don't uh, occur in the Western church. Miracles are signs and wonders are signs pointing to Jesus. We don't need any signs to point to Jesus. Uh, we know who he is. We've got more Jesus and availability, Henry, to Jesus than, than any other place in the world. Uh, so those miracles aren't necessary. Now, let me share with you what I know for sure. Um, I know in other parts of the world, third world countries, especially in um, Islamic countries, where um, people are literally taking their lives into their hands um, if they would become a Christian. Um, they, they, they likely will be killed. Um, God does miracles. He's still doing those things. He does what's necessary to win people. And, and in, in a country where you might lose your life for becoming a Christian, they need to know. So God is, is, is much more visible, and by that I mean he appears to people in visions and dreams. Um, miracles occur, signs to point to Jesus, and people see and they're blown away. And God is moving uh, in the Islamic world in ways that we, we don't get reports here. Um, but, but things are changing so quickly. You know this news going on in Iran, for example, right now is probably the biggest thing going on in our world right now and yet the media is hardly reporting on it but but all of this is going to serve to open a society for jesus to enter some of you are old enough to remember when uh the the berlin wall was torn down and when russia opened wide and there was a time when we were able to send missionaries we were able to send and, and plant churches and there was revivals going on in, in the, the house churches of China. Um, there's there's uh, a hundred, and this is a general term, it's more than this, but a hundred million people that are being saved. And it's all in an underground church. So God is moving. And when these doors open, uh, we've got to take advantage of them. And believe me, God is going to do miracles in those things. Now, let me address one other thing, Henry, and then we'll move on. Um, often when I talk with people about this thing, they say, well, well, why does God do miracles for us? We still need miracles. No, we don't. We misunderstand the purpose of the miracle. We want a miracle because to us, it's all about us. And the miracles were all about, only about Jesus. So we don't do miracles. So what the church has done to our shame is they've taken silliness and proclaimed it miracles. Bethel Church in Reading, shame on them. Um, um, gold fillings and angel feathers. Oil that's pouring from Bibles. All of this nonsense. People falling over and shaking. Being slain in the spirit. Um, making it appear that somebody's leg is stretching. We, we call those things miracles. Those are nothing but parlor tricks. Those are not miracles. Jesus said an evil and adulterous generation seeks after signs and wonders. What does a generation do that isn't adulterous and evil? We seek after Jesus. And the difference is important. Henry, every new believer, and I don't know if you're a new believer or not, but every new believer struggles with that as we read the miracles of Jesus um, greater things than these will you do, he was. He said to his apostles, and they did not greater in terms of quality, but certainly greater in terms of quantity. But um, the miracles, um, Jesus said, even if the miracles were done, they wouldn't believe. So I hope that answers your question, Henry. Thank you for the question. 340-9585, another day the phones have been quiet. Here's a question from Oliver. 
He says, is it okay to attend two or three churches instead of just one? Oliver, everything is okay. I told you, or I, I actually said at the beginning of the program to another question that, that we would go to churches. Paul and I would go three and four times a day uh, just because we wanted everything that we could get. We're new believers. We didn't know anything. But Oliver, I think to grow, to mature in your faith, to get a, a foundation, you need to find a church that's your church. Uh, you need to be in a place where you're committed. Sometimes people like going to multiple churches because they don't have to make any commitment to any of them. The people that do that give very little financially. They give little or nothing at all in terms of service. Uh, they don't invest themselves in the lives of the people in any of those churches because they're always rushing to something else. And it's sort of like running from Baskin-Robbins to, um, what's another ice cream place? I can't think of another ice cream place. Just another ice cream place. Um, you know, you can only have so much ice cream. Pretty soon you got to get to work. So, Oliver, find a church that's your church. Sit under the authority of that church. Now, that's what we don't like. We don't like being under authority. But if we're going to grow, we've got to learn to be under authority before God can give us any authority. And I have just seen in all of my years here, I've seen too many people fading in one church and out of another church, and, and they never really make any kind of a commitment. They never learn any lessons. They're never planted anywhere. And they sort of wrap themselves in sort of a phony spirituality. Uh, serving Jesus sometimes is hard work. It's wonderful work. But it's sometimes really hard work. So um, find a church and make it your own and invest in that church and be blessed by that church and grow in and with that church. And it'll change your life, I promise you. You know, Oliver, for me, um, from my perspective, because I've been here now almost 27 years, um, the blessings of longevity, of tying yourself to a church and staying there through thick and thin, the blessings of that are overwhelming. You get to see people change. You get to see the lives of their children change. I get to now marry kids that I dedicated as infants. I get to see all of the changes that they go through. I get to see them change, be transformed. And if you're church jumping, you're going to miss all the good stuff. And I think, Oliver, and I don't want this to be personal to you, but I think that church hopping is a sign of immaturity. And unfortunately, we have a whole bunch of immature Christians. Uh, we don't have time for calls. We've got about four minutes, so I'll take a, another question or two, and we'll call it a week. Uh, here's an anonymous question. Uh, he says, I've fallen to pornography, temptation repeatedly over the years. Would you recommend an accountability group at church with other men? Um, anonymous, you're probably not going to like my answer. Uh, I never recommend accountability groups. Um, you know, I know that that sounds good, it sounds sincere. Um, but, but look at it this way. If you're not accountable to Jesus who paid the price for your sins, who died for you, how are you going to be accountable to another human? And accountability groups are all about the problem. If we had an accountability group for porn in the church and everybody, every man or woman who was involved in porn came to it, all we talk about is porn. It's like an AA meeting, you know, you just stand up and talk about how miserable your life is. If I don't come to the meetings, then I'm going to blow it again. We need to talk about Jesus. Jesus is the answer for temptation, for sin, whatever that sin is. And what I find happening is that when men get together with other men, um, there's really no long-term help or long-term solutions. This is a matter between you and Jesus Christ. And he's not angry with you, Anonymous. He wants you to be with him. Here's the best thing you can do. When you're tempted, 
to look at porn. And I like the way you said it. I've fallen into pornography temptation. Here's what you decide. Jesus, I'm being tempted to do this, but I can't take you in there when I do it. So in order to go look at that filth on a computer screen, I've got to say goodbye to you so I can go have a few minutes of physical satisfaction. And then you know you're going to feel horrible about it afterwards. The enemy's going to pound you. The Spirit of God is going to convict you. So how about just staying with Jesus? If Jesus is in the room where your computer is or where, where you're using your phone to look at pornography, would you share it with him? If you wouldn't share it with him, don't do it. I, I often use this example, but it's almost like saying, Jesus, I love you. Thank you for dying for my sins. But right now I love pornography more. I love my flesh more. So you got to go. I'll check with you later. There's no other way. There's no other way to beat this insidious sin. Think about what you're doing to the wife. You're going to explain to God why instead of presenting her holy and blameless, you are demeaning her, defiling her by watching other people have sex. I understand the temptation I do. I understand that the enemy has his hands in it. But Jesus is stronger, Jesus is stronger, Jesus is stronger. Thanks for the question. I'll be praying for you. You've been listening to The Word to Stand On for Life. Been a good week on the show. Thank you for participating. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Find somebody who looks a little bit lonely and tell them Jesus has a plan for their life. God bless you. I'll see you Monday on AM 630, The Word. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapels, The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.